Nicolas Cage is probably one of our generation's definitive actors. Hello and welcome to Cage Fighting, answering the big questions in film. Andy Gillard here, hope everyone is keeping safe. Hi, it's Matt Guy here, good evening, how are we? Okay, you cunts. <laughs> Whoa there! Get in the spirit of things, hello. <laughs> I was going to do a swear warning in a minute's time. <laughs> how are we all feeling this evening, Stu, Matt, are we both good? Glorious. Yeah, good, mate. Thank you. Are you all right? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Finally, the uh, the weather seems to have evened out a little bit and I'm no longer baking. <sighs> so, as you know, the premise of the picture pods, we usually look at a couple of films where we discuss Nick Cage in a starring role. Um, the film we're going to be discussing, if you haven't already figured it out, is going to be Kick-Ass which isn't Nick Cage in a starring role, but this feels like it's a seminal piece of Nick Cage history to me. Um, so we're going to have a look at this film in spite of the fact that it doesn't really fit our remit. I think it would be rude not to, to put it in there, don't you? Let's get it. Let's get to it. Let's do it. And as Stu has already trampled over it, I am going to have to tell you <laughs> there might be some juicy language in this one. Obviously... Discussing this film, when it was out and about, this is the film that made a million conservative mothers shit their britches. You know, the, the whole world came to a standstill because a 12-year-old said a C-bomb or two. So with that being said, stop being a cunt and let's get into it. <laughs> okay, you cunts. Let's see what you can do now. Eeny, meeny, miny, no. Okay, so 2010, Kick-Ass. What a film, what a book. Uh, this film starts with a man standing on top of a building wearing a superhero suit, about to fly, the whole world expectant. Except that's not the world we live in, so this man just plummets a hundred stories crashing into a parked taxi cab. <laughs> I loved this psycho at the start. Like, if you don't know what this film is about, if you just go thinking this is a superhero movie, and you see a guy with a pair of wings on, you think, oh, he's going to glide and everything's going to be glorious? And it absolutely isn't. It's the perfect start to a comedic yet hard-hitting film, I think. I'd completely forgot about this as well because I hadn't seen it for, I probably hadn't seen it for about six, five, six years or something like that. And when it started, I thought, I don't remember it starting like this. <laughs> and then it, it was only when he, when he hit the taxi, I thought, oh yeah, this is how, it, this, is how this film is. The only thing I could compare it to was the kind of the opening scene in The Other Guys with Will Ferrell. Well, this is Samuel Jackson and The Rock when they jump off the building and they're the heroes and then all of a sudden they hit the ground below and it was like one of those shocking things. And I'm exactly the same as Stu. I didn't remember that bit at all. I was like, but knowing the film, I thought, mm, something's not right here. Kapow. And it's, <laughs> it's like, oh, it was amazing. It's great. And then we meet Dave Lazuski. 
comic book reading, Invisible to Girls, Chronic Masturbator, with a hard-on for Katie Doma and his English teacher. I love that scene where he's perving on his English teacher. She clocks him and says to him, you should be reading Hamlet. And then she just has this really cheeky grin like she knew exactly what he was looking at. That really tickled me, that did. We all had one, didn't we? We all had a teacher like this. I don't think I did. No, you see these stories of like now, like American kids uh, that have like these amazing looking teachers. And I had had nothing like that. Nothing at all. Oh, you you never lived. I mean, we we never we never had ones that were um, were blessed in the chess department. Thank probably thankfully. (laughs) Um, But there there was I remember once um, Stumpy actually proposed to our French teacher in the middle of the classroom. (laughs) He got down on one knee and everything. When I mean, this was like in year nine, and she was, uh, yeah, there, there was a few that were very good looking. So he brought back, brought back their memories. I know Dean and Goldie are going to have exactly the same things when they listen to this next week, but mm. they know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, we had one who looked a little bit like Dana Scully, and and yeah, she was probably the best one at, at our school. She was nothing spectacular, but. She was reminiscent of Gillian Anderson, and that was enough, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I like this quote that came up. Thousands of people want to be Paris Hilton, and nobody wants to be Spider-Man. And I really like the sentiment behind that, that we live in a world of um, reality TV stars being more important than just being a good human being, albeit a fictional one in this case. Do you think he is too good looking to be a geek i was too good looking to what be a geek you, what are you saying <laughs> <laughs> in my uh, my flowing hair days wow no i thought i thought they got spots on i thought well you you could imagine him with a full-on face full of zits yeah it would have been difficult it wouldn't have been difficult to root for him if he was a normal looking geek but he had to look believable that he could make that transformation i think mm, yeah so he couldn't be full-on spotty gimp he had to have like a little bit of something about him and like we then go and see him in other films later on where he just gets ripped to shit and he wasn't that yet i think he's i think he's the right man for this job i would have struggled to pick anybody else to be honest to be uh to be dave in this you know the um peter's friend in um far from home I can never remember his name. Yeah, the, um, the chubby guy. Yeah, that's what you. What you, I think that's trying to say. If you, you can imagine that of him, because he he fits the mold. But for me, he kind of did because I knew people who looked similar to that with the hair and the glasses and everything like that. And that was, I mean, obviously that was a good ten years before this happened. So, <laughs> geekdom at school is probably different now compared to what it was back then. Mm. But it it worked for me. Uh, we also get introduced to Chris D'Amico, a rich kid who loves comic books and is friendless, friendless even. Dave attempts to make friends only for Chris's bodyguard to tell him <laughs> to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> that really tickled me when that happened. Again, I knew it was coming, but it just really made me laugh. It was just, I really loved this start. He had no expression on his face at all. No, it's like. It's like Dave looks at him as if to say, oh, what's going to happen? Is this going to be good? And he just looks at him completely deadpan. Fuck off. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) And then whilst walking home from the comic book store, Dave and his friend, who is played by Evan Peters, who will one day go on to play X-Men's Quicksilver, 
as opposed to Aaron Taylor-Johnson, who played the MCU's version of Quicksilver. That could get complicated. They get jabbed by a couple of hoods and show the visual of a bystander closing the curtains to avoid even witnessing the crime. The opening 10 minutes of this film are damn near perfect as far as I'm concerned. They just, they managed to set up the world perfectly. They've given us our hero and his support network. They've established his friends. They've established the girl he loves. They give us his superhero origins when we find out that his mother died of an aneurysm. It's wonderfully shot. It is bright. It is colourful. It is inviting. It's kick-ass. It's such a perfect introduction. I really think that. You know, it, it reminded me of. It reminded me a lot of the Inbetweeners, who they just nailed it. Yeah, and it's like a, a big screen Americanized version of that that world, at a a, a a piece in time kind of thing. Mm. That's what that was. Obviously, Inbetweeners comes later on, but that's what it seemed to me. It seemed real. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's obviously quite an English. Uh, or British at least, contingent involved in this film. So Matthew Vaughan, the director, Jane Goldman, Jonathan Ross's wife, she was the script writer on it. Aaron Taylor Johnson, obviously English, Mark Strong, Scottish. Uh, Even Katie Domer's friend, she's a British girl. Um, Sophie Wu, I think her name is. So there's quite a few people who pop. And I do feel that that comes across in the the humour and everything. It, there is quite a, a British feel, and it does feel very much of its time, as you say. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's spot the it's spot the kind of uh, spot the British supporting cast really in that in the film. There's loads, and Tamar Hassan makes a very oh, yeah, short of cameo yeah. in it um, as well. You've got um, what's the guy's name from uh, from Sm- uh Lockstock, uh, he's in loads of things. He, he gets crushed by the car. Um, the porter in the um, the porter in the hotel as well. There's just tons of like British yeah. actors that are in it. Um, and it's it. really it's really nice to see because um, it does have a it's comic time and it's impeccable. This film, and I really do think that that is a British influence or an English mm. influence or British influence in that you know I think across the comedic world, comic timing is something that is associated with British humour really really well um yeah. and you can just feel it can't you just feel that element in it mm. uh just to answer those questions that is dexter fletcher yeah he cool. was the uh the, the dude who got crushed and jason fleming was the doorman who'd also been in Lockstock and lay a cake with matthew vaughan and everything so he's obviously he knows who he likes to work with and he doesn't deviate too much from that uh from that master plan and for me Matthew Vaughan has done very little wrong. You know, for me, the worst film of his is probably Layer Cake, which isn't exactly a bad film. No, it's. I like Layer Cake quite a lot for for what it is. Only a bit of Daniel Craig in there as well. Mm. I think that's why I don't like it, to be yeah, honest. Good Daniel Craig as well. Before he started. Mm. <laughs> before he started living up to his own hype. Yeah. Do we. um? I think if there's any Americans out there listening to this, I need them to answer a question for me because in uh, our little island, we use the term uh, wank bank. However, <laughs> in this film, they use the term whack off warehouse. And I'm keen, <laughs> and I'm keen, I'm keen to know, is that, is that the go-to? Is that the default for the place in your mind where you store 
filthy images for practical use later on if any americans can go back to me on that because i do want to know if that's the default uh, going forward <laughs> and on that note uh, from the bright and inviting, we go to the dark and intense. We meet the big bad, Frank D'Amico, played by Mark Strong. Is Mark Strong the Scottish Ed, Hel uh, Ed Harris? He's bald, mm -hmm. he's intense as fuck, he's intimidating, he's endlessly watchable. And when he plays a good guy, you just know he's going to be a bit of a shitbag as well. Yeah. This was... The more weird thing about this one was that he's actually still got a bit of... Mitch Pileggi going on around the side and back of his head. He's not completely bald in this one. Yeah. But, yeah, I know what you mean. He's got that stare. He's got that look about him where you know, you know he's going to do something. Mm. Big fan of Mark Strong. He's the kind of actor I will watch in any old shit. Because he's always going to put at least a good performance if the rest of the film doesn't support it. So Strong and his henchmen, they kill a dude thinking he'd stolen from them. But the man pleads his innocence, stating that Batman took the drugs from him. I quite like the reveal of uh, Frank being Chris's dad. So all that horrible shit's going on in the warehouse. And then he just goes and sidles up next to him in the uh, in the limousine, chatting like nothing's happening at all. <laughs> and just, just over in, in the background, you can hear this dude screaming, even though he's clearly mm. a few hundred yards away in a warehouse. Actually, that was lovely. Really funny. Really well done. And played really straight as well, again. Yeah, which I, I like that, especially with a guy like Mark Strong. I think if he's going to do comedy like uh, the Brothers Grimsby, <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't work so much. He needs to be straight as an arrow, you know, like, that's where the comedy comes from with him, I think. We then cut back to Dave in his uh, returning to his home. He finds a package which contains a diving suit, which has been repurposed into his superhero costume. And he does what absolutely everybody else would do. <laughs> he immediately turns into Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver. Because <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? You would. Yeah. You'd have to look in the mirror and cut that monologue. It just has to be done. That's what I like there because it shows that Dave is just one of us, really. He's just a normal guy. And I like that because, again, he just sets out his stall early doors. Yeah, and it's exa exactly like when I um, when I went to my sister's 20, was it the 21st or third? It probably was the 21st. It was that long ago when I went to Joker. I mean, you all seen the pictures of it when uh, mm. I spent hours putting the, the latex scar on and dyeing my hair green. And as soon as as soon as it was all ready, I did talk to myself in the mirror for a, a good five, ten minutes in, in character. Good. You have to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, we get to meet the other parties of the film. Mindy McCready and her daddy, Damon McCready. <laughs> Mindy is worried that being shot in the chest is going to hurt her. But her daddy lovingly talks her around and then shoots her in the chest and then helps her back to her feet. Damon takes her bowling and then for ice cream, where she confesses for her birthday that she would like a Bratz doll. The look on Nick Cage's face when he thinks for a second she might actually want this toy doll. Like, he's genuinely heartbroken, but he doesn't want to let her know it. And then when she tells her and just says, I'm just fucking with you. I want a butterfly knife. Oh, child, you always knock me for a loop. Just fucking <laughs> adorable. It really is. Like, I mean, I don't know if it's intentional or not, or the source material, if that has took any influence, but the kind of Ned Flanderisms <laughs> of of him as a father, as opposed to being Big Daddy, is just, 
so entertaining. Like the way he talks to her with like so much love and affection, but then shoots her. It's just, it's so good. The dialogue is so good. Like they do so much with so little. They do so much with so little in terms of emotional things in this film as well, but we'll get onto that. But um, the the connection and the chemistry between the two is really excellent. And it, it make like, you just know how much he loves her in like within about two sentences of dialogue. It's crazy. And it's the way he says child to her as well. Yeah, yeah. Every, every opportunity. And then we're back with Dave Lazowski. He gets to meet the same hoods who attacked him and Quicksilver a couple of scenes prior. Uh, they're breaking into a car, but this time he decides not to let them get away with it. He suits up and goes to exact his vengeance upon them. He gets stabbed in the gut and run over. It's <laughs> real world consequences for trying to do good. Uh, we then get a look into Mindy and Damon's apartment. Passcode on the entrance. Guns of all shapes and sizes covering the wall. Damon testing Mindy upon the weaponry. And finishes by asking a question about John Woo. I, I did giggle at that, I'll be honest. <laughs> and back with Dave, we see that his body is covered now with metal plates all throughout his body. He comments that he looks like freaking Wolverine. There's also been damage to his nerves. Uh, he cannot feel pain any longer. Back at school, Katie Doma asks Dave to join her at the comic book store. Every geek stream. Hmm. So Dave then suits back up. And if anything ages this film, it's going to be kick-ass setting up a MySpace page. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've got my notes. <laughs> <laughs> But back on the streets, Dave takes on a gang of ne'er-do-wells. Uh, really good scene this was. It was nice to see a comic book movie that isn't about fighting on strings and, mm -hmm. you know, where, like, a punch isn't going to knock someone flying across the room. It, it, You could feel everything that went on here. It was a proper street-level scrap. It, it felt real and looked real, and I really appreciate that. I think that's why it worked so well. Because the, the whole... I say the whole three quarters of the film are kind of almost based in reality, <laughs> and I think that's like Matt was saying it's got that's why the humor works as well because it's so real and it's not forced. Nothing, nothing. It seems forced. Mm. Obviously, you apart from a, a grown adult shooting his own child in the chest, but obviously, <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of the things it is very grounded, and that's why it works. Mm. One of the things um, about this scene that I love the most was its um, use of the prodigy uh, omen. Yes. Um, it was just such a great. I can't think of a. I can't think of a better song they could have used for that scene. It was just. It was excellent. Um, and you're right about the the fight scene being super realistic. I remember this is a really niche reference now, but there's a there's a Slayer that is in the band live documentary, and there's this really. Um, is this really like small geeky girl who loves to go in the pits and basically the whole the, the whole point of this is she says crazy beats big every time and this is it he's just completely fearless and like he just he punch he, he punches out his 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 opposition he's just got the will to do it um and it's just a matter and like the way the way it's the little things like the way he sits over him when um when they're backing off and he's and he's like he does this monologue about uh, are you willing uh, are you willing to die for this kid someone you don't even know and the way he builds up it's just it's excellent like I'm I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it it was really really well done and all the um exactly what would happen as well people filming from inside in mm -hmm. safety yeah hundred percent even though it's ten years old it, 
other than MySpace, so far this could also have been yesterday. You know, it, it does it does have that sort of almost timeless, or, or should I say timeless? It does have that feel of it being very modern day. It, it's aged very well, as I say, other than MySpace. But then Kickass gets famous or infamous. Not quite sure which way it is, but obviously all those videos that were taken inside the diner now hit the internet and everyone knows Kickass. In his private life, Dave manages to go for a drink with Katie and he recommend. Oh, she says that she was recommended Scott Pilgrim. Oh, be still my beating heart. <laughs> it was just wonderful. It made me so happy. But sadly, Dave gets friend zone and Katie wants him to be her gay BFF, even though he's <laughs> not gay. Katie then emails Kickass for a measure of revenge on her ex, leading to one of the best fight scenes of all time. Kickass visits Katie's ex to let him know it's over. Kickass has walked into a bear trap with a number of guys ready to beat him down. Luckily, the cavalry arrives and we finally get to see Hit Girl. Not Mindy, Hit Girl. Is there a more explosive way to introduce a character than running a sword through a man and then asking, OK, you cunts, let's see what you can do now. <laughs> out, of, out of the mouth of babes as well. <laughs> the thing is, it's done, it's done so well that in any other film that it could be, it would feel really cheesy, but it doesn't. No, it, it doesn't. It feels legit. And I, yeah. I, I did have to... Written a rare thing, I did actually have to look this up and how this was even allowed to happen. And apparently, it was the uh, her own mom who said, "Just do it," yeah, because it didn't feel real not doing it that way, which is amazing. Absolutely, I mean, if if they'd have gone with something a little bit more not saccharine, because that's sweet. If they'd have gone to something a bit toned down it would have looked very out of place when she then goes on to absolutely brutalise everybody in that room. <laughs> she has to go in with something as hard-hitting and as cutting as saying that word in order to make everything else seem right. If she'd have called them assholes and then split a guy from his asshole to his mouth hole, it would have looked <laughs> stupid. It, it just... It, How it strange. Perfectly. You're, you're right, it legitimises. I never even thought of it. It legitimises what she does because of the choice of one word. It's mm. a really, really good way of putting it. The only time I, I think I'd ever heard this on anything was it, they said it in Shameless, the original Channel 4 Shameless, not the remake. And that's the first time I'd, I'd seen it on telly. And even then it was shocking. And mm. in context of that, they didn't use it too much. But then I couldn't think of it ever being used in film before. That I've I... seen anyway. So it, Shaun of the Dead... Uh, and again, a British film, and obviously like language change. So this is so Shaun of the Dead, two thousand and four, used it um, when he gets uh, he's in the pub. Can I buy any of you cunts a drink? You know, that's <laughs> that's why it's just gone gone completely out of my head because it's it's British, eh? so it's just like you hear that all the time. Yeah, but exactly. it, 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 I even even consider it. The earliest film I can remember uh, which used that word, uh, well, an American film anyway. Uh, have either of you two seen Chasing Amy, 1997, Kevin Smith film? A long time ago. Is that Affleck as well? Yeah, Affleck, one of his yeah. early roles. Yeah, um, at the beginning of that film, uh, Affleck's mate, played by Jason Lee, he talks about a nun calling him a fucking cunt rag. 
And that's one of the first times I've ever heard that word used in an American film. Because it just, like, times have changed and it does seem to be more acceptable now. But especially in the 90s, in America, that just seemed to be like the absolute worst thing you could do. Oh, it is. For, for, my, for my parents now, it's, a, it's an abomination. Yeah. Mm. But the only time I've ever heard my mum say it is about Jamie O'Hara. That's the only time I've ever heard her say it. <laughs> yeah, my mum always shouts at me when I say cunt. But in my defence, I say I only call them a cunt if they are a cunt. So It's about ten yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, if, if we're going to go explicit on Anchor, we might as well go explicit, haven't we? So. Balls out, let's just do it. Uh, but yeah, I love this film, this, this scene, sorry. Um, it's brutal, it's high energy. The music, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it fit perfectly. It's funny. It's just fucking brilliant. And then Hit Girl nearly gets killed. But luckily, a bullet takes out the watch guard because Big Daddy has always got her back. Mm, I um, Well, we talked about it on the question cast just gone, um, how one of my favourite fight scenes in any film is the um, the church fight scene in Kingsman Secret Service. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of, this this feels like the foreplay to that because obviously it is um, this the fight scene. It was just really really well done, um, gratuitously violent, um, but almost comedic in its execution as well. Um, and even even after the mass amounts of violence in that scene, it's not nullified because it's the wrong word, but it's complemented by her talking about how how gay his taser is. <laughs> and it's like it's like it's it's just hilarious and like for once i'm not going to talk about you know um being woke or being anything like that because you need to take this for what it is which is just an absolutely hilarious film um it's just it's just brilliant it, it, it counter it counterbalances everything so well gratuitous violence then it's funny and then your palate's cleansed again for whatever's going to happen next mm-hmm. absolutely so Hit Girl and Big Daddy, they go to meet Kickass and tell him to stop being sloppy and invite him into their own version of the Justice League. Hit Girl tells Dave if he ever needs them to contact the mayor's office and he'll put up a big signal, it's in the shape of a big cock. I love that. <laughs> Obviously, being a fan of uh, old Batman and, you know, they would have to speak to the mayor about it in 66 and the bat symbol and everything, but just the thought of them putting this big cock up in the sky just <laughs> fucking killed me that did that was really funny we then get a bit of backstory on the mccreedys we find out that uh, damon mccready is out for justice after frank d'amico set him up when he was a cop sending him to jail so when mindy was born her mom then died and mindy was left on her own for a few years whilst uh, big daddy was still stuck in prison Frank D'Amico thinks that Kickass is the guy who has been messing with his mafiosa business. He kills a man, incorrectly believing him to be Kickass as he's dressed up as him. I really like that scene when he just walks up to him and just gives him that roundhouse kick and knocks him mm. the fuck out. Again, it's like brutal, but with that edge of comedy so that you don't get quite too far with it. Yeah. And whilst venting about his frustrations, Chris his son overhears him talking about this and he tells him that he can help him out find kick-ass i you know am i the only one who feels like the boat was missed a little bit on mclovin i mean he's such a good actor and like super bad is a fucking great film and he's brilliant in it 
and he was poised to be this big breakout star in comedy and it never it never quite happened but he's always good value in everything i've seen him in i think he's just he suffers from being having such a unique face and the whole mclovin thing is kind of it's a bit like um dj qualls as well yeah where he was he did a few two or three films in the space of well, about five, six years, and then you, you didn't see him for years and on end, and then he kind of came back. I think he was, he did come back. I think he was in Bones, a few episodes of that, in a straightish role. Mm. But he was, it was never the same for him. So maybe, maybe that's why, because he's too unique looking. Could be, I suppose he isn't classically handsome leading man looking material, but he's got comedy chops like nobody's business. It just, yeah. it feels a little bit unfair, I think. But speaking of DJ Qualls, he's also in a series called Legit, which I think you two especially will both really like. It's a very funny sitcom show, kind of rough in parts, but really funny. And you'll like it especially, Matt, because it is um, Australian comedian Jim, Jim Jeffries. Oh, yeah. oh, yes. It's, it's his show. Um, it's in. excellent. It's called Legit. Check it out, definitely. So, in order to help his father, Chris D'Amico suits up as a superhero, Red Mist. And he lures Kick-Ass into his father's warehouse, where Frank was going to whack Kick-Ass. And, and when he gets there, all the goons have been murdered. The building is on fire. Chris absolutely shits his kecks. He does not know what is going on. But he has enough wherewithal to take that teddy bear with him. Frank obviously believes that it was Kickass who did it until Chris returns home and shows him the, the video that was in the nanny cam that was in this teddy bear. I loved that. So when they're watching the TV screen and you can see Big Daddy rocks up on the screen and then there's just like this slight turn in the screen where it goes from the screen they're watching to mm-hmm. us actually being in the warehouse with Big Daddy. I don't know why. I just thought that little action that. That trick of the camera was just perfectly done. Really good filmmaking, I thought there. Yeah, it was like a similar scene in The Matrix as well, where they do the from when yes. they go from the um, the green code into the mm. into the simulation world. Watch it, Andy. You've got plenty of time. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's it's really smooth. I, I know exactly what you mean. It's really it's really smoothly done. From how I don't know how it was done either. I presume it's kind of it's auto focused by computer or somehow presumably and then a, a fade over the top but however it, it works anyway what was excellent about this scene was the um the the, the background music um because it's the same as the final scene in 28 days later um and it's it's just a really good tense builder um to show kind of the seriousness of the scene so hit girl scenes are very um that's the word I want to use. Pl- kind of playful music. Like I think it might mm-hmm. be what what Ronda Rousey came out to in WWE. Yeah. I think. Yeah, um, Joan Jett. Yeah, but when um, but when Big Daddy's doing his, it's 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 evil. It's demonic. It's dark. It's angry. It's brooding. And, and you know, I immediately made the connection to Twenty Eight Days Later, and it was um, it's just really, like I can't get over how some of the intricacies that you might not even think about, like actually build these scenes. Um, a lot more than a film that you would think on the surface would go to the levels of doing. Um, because you think comic book film, you just think it might be like hastily put together when actually it's not at all. There's, there's things that go on that really, um, really add layers to it. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And again, this is another scene which is just brutal as well. The way he lays waste to those motherfuckers is just like if they were if they you didn't know they were bad guys, you might feel sorry for them. It was that hard hitting. But anyway, Dave now decides that he's going to leave the kick-ass life behind him, but not before coming out to Katie. And by coming out, I don't mean coming out as gay. I mean, he's coming out as being straight and as being kick-ass. Uh, and they get together <laughs> after this and become insanely happy. But then Red Miss pisses on his bonfire by telling him that bad men are after them and they know who they are. And maybe, just maybe, Hit Girl and Big Daddy can help them out of this shitstorm that's coming their way. Kickass arranges a meeting with Big Daddy and Hit Girl, and when Kickass and Red Mist get into the uh, into the room, Red Mist immediately shoots Hit Girl, and all of Frank's men pile into the room, taking Kickass and Big Daddy with them. And in order to stop with the vigilante wannabes out there, D'Amico plans on showing the world who Big Daddy and Kickass are but not before torturing them live on the internet. Which, for 10 years ago, was pretty revolutionary as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, just about to say the same. Yeah, some proper forward thinking there. They couldn't forward think Twitter and Facebook, but torture over, the, over online. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was very tough to watch this. Um, like, everything throughout this film feels proper close to the bone. Like, if you were told that this happened... you. Other than like a few odds, like you say, Hit Girl and Big Daddy, everything else that happens feels almost like it's set within our world. And it's like when you see the punches landed, it they, they feel real. Like you hear the bones crunching and it's... If yeah. the, you could remix this. You could remix a lot of this film with a different soundtrack. Take out all the costumes and it could quite easily be a mob film. Yeah, it could. And yeah, it would I mean, work, work equally as well as a mob film than it does as a brilliant comedy. Mm-hmm. Just for that, like we've said, the grounding. Yeah, I mean, if you think of, like, say, Casino or Goodfellas and Pesci's performance in both of those films, there are guys in this who do sort of play it that way, where it's it feels legit. Like, yeah. You, you genuinely feel every punch that he's landed, and it's, oh, it's, it's tough. And then bang, the lights go out, night goggles come on. They assumed Hit Girl was dead, and they were wrong. The first person viewed through those goggles loved it. Like, she's just fucking inches away from guys shooting them in the face. Fucking, <laughs> like, murder shouldn't feel cathartic, but it really, <laughs> really did in this scene. It was so good. Again, just the camera work and everything in this I thought was perfect. You know, have you ever seen um, Doom with Carl Urban? Yeah, just about to say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I know this is this is five years after that, so they've uh, learned from their mistakes. But you compare them to the them two scenes side by side. <laughs> there's there's no comparison whatsoever. Worlds apart, isn't it? I mean, the only reason I watched Doom is because The Rock was in it, and it's it's not a good film. And that scene is cheesy as anything. <laughs> But in this, it doesn't feel cheesy. It doesn't feel like, oh, it's just a computer game mode. It feels like you're part of the gang. It's it's actually quite, in, it's inviting you in. It's drawing you in. And I 
think that I think that's what you need in a film like this is you need need to feel part of it because you need to feel sympathy and empathy for the characters. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, she doesn't manage to save Big Daddy. Kerosene soaked, the flames manage to get to him. The shrieking and the screaming from Nick Cage. <laughs> Fuck, it was just heartbreaking. It like especially when we've seen him being like really playful and sweet with her. Mm. And then at the end, and he's just he's trying to hold it together for, for her feelings and oh the humanity I've got written down here, because it is just devastating. The acting here between Chloe and Nick is it's, it's it's some of the best in the film, to be perfectly yeah. honest. It's incredible. I wish I had the hind not hindsight. I wish I could go back and watch this for the first time and feel what I was feeling. So when he's putting on his makeup before this, um, and he's in the mirror and we see him putting his makeup on, I know what's about to happen. So I'm instantly hit with this slight wave of, okay, I know what's about to happen now. This is going to be a bit of a downer. Um, and the way he is screaming out and all he wants to do is protect his daughter and, and, and give instructions mm-hmm. on what to do is really powerful. Really, really, really well done. Um, and it's a running theme in this film for me is they do so much with so little. So mm-hmm. she talks to him um, and they have a, very, a really short exchange. Um, and she kisses him goodnight on the head and says, sleep tight. And they don't go into mass amounts talking about grief at all, but it's there. You can physically feel it. That's a relationship between the two of them. Maybe I'm thinking about it too much. I don't know, but it's um, like they do so much with so little dialogue wise in this film. You're not thinking too much into it because it stands out so much because it's so well done. Yeah. If it wasn't yeah. so well done, then it'd stand out for the wrong reasons. Mm. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. It wouldn't have the impact. You wouldn't care that this little girl's lost her daddy. Mm-hmm. But you do. You, your heart breaks for her. And oh, it's just excellent. The, the acting is just... It's perfect. Just perfect. But now we're left just with Kick-Ass and Hit Girl. They vow to finish the job off and take down Frank D'Amico. Kikassi's monologue here. With no power comes no responsibility. <laughs> Except that wasn't true. I love that. And that is so much better than that garbled bullshit that was in uh, Ghost Rider two weeks ago. That nonsense <laughs> that his dad said to him. This was perfect because it's the inverse of with great power. But it still sort of means the same thing. It still means that we should be better. And I, I love it. And then we get another absolute fucking whopper of a fight scene. Now, <laughs> I've got written down here, which is better, Colin Firth Kingsman or Chloe Grace Moretz in D'Amico's apartment? For me, I think this one probably edges it. Maybe it's because I'm a big Chloe Grace Moretz fan. I think she's great in everything she does. It's not like Colin Firth's a bad actor, don't get me wrong. But I just felt the stakes in this, that she's lost so much. She's got so little left and she just wants to make sure that she can get through it all at the end. And it just, it really felt like it hit home. Everything building up to it and then this scene, it was just perfect. What do you, Pear, think? Well, obviously I can't comment on that. But... Oh, of course you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> yet. Um, and Dean went, he, he went proper mad about that and all. And all of his, <laughs> his tirades. Um, but yeah, I will get round to that this week. But, but I think the fact that her performance in this and the two fight scenes with her inspired the um, the one shot from Daredevil season one. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, to and how excellent that is. To have that kind of influence on something, it's got to be great. So I'm, I'm automatically punting for this. Yeah, Matt, what do you think? I think um, I'd, I'd still say I prefer the Kingsman scene only because um, it's just done on a much it's just done on a much grander scale. You've not only got what Colin uh, Firth is doing in um, but you've got everything else around it. It's a, it's a much more chaotic, much better choreographed fight scene, I feel, than this one. Mm. Um, but that's not to say that the the kick out this kick ass apartment scene is is not enjoyable. I just feel it's on a grander scale. It's a bit more inventive. It's a bit more um, they're a bit more creative with what they can do because they've got a lot more like weapons at their disposal. They use the the things, the elements of the church like a, a lot better. They use. And there's there's about 50, 60 people fighting each other and murdering murdering each other in these really inventive ways. Whereas in this, it's it's nothing we haven't seen before. It's not to say I didn't enjoy it. I just uh, if you're asking me the question, that's just what I'd go with. Mm. But what I what I thought was really good about this is the comedic elements when she's hiding in the um, in the set of drawers or in the you know underneath. And <laughs> um, well, I'll let I'll let you I'll let you t- take the reins on what happens next. Yeah. So as you say, um, she gets cornered and hence about to hide. And the uh, the big um, bodyguard dude says, "Fuck this shit! I'm getting the bazooka." <laughs> <laughs> Fucking superb that. Again, just this is like you said, Matt, before about so much with so little. The dialogue it's so concise. There isn't a wasted word, and yeah. it makes everything punchier. It makes everything funnier. And it makes everything much more hard hitting that it's it's there, it's in your face, and it's it's just perfectly written. Everything well, the every beat is just nailed. It's brilliant. It's funny because the, the best thing about that actually isn't the dialogue, it's the way he gently creeps into the room to get the bazooka. <laughs> the way he like slowly walks across as if he's trying not to disturb them or not to cause a scene. Um it's it's little elements like that and I'm 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 tooting our great nation's horn here, but that's a British thing. That's that's doing something with with little to play with. Um, and even then, he says a line like "Everything's under control." And then he says, "You've got a, like something like you've got a fucking bazooka." How is everything under control? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, so good. And then, just as you think, as Hit Girl's number is finally up, Elvis hits, and all of a sudden, Kickass comes up outside the window wearing a fucking jetpack <laughs> with Gatling guns attached. <laughs> the use of music in this scene, like Quentin Tarantino would be fucking jealous. It was so well done. Like that's probably one of my favourite Elvis songs as well. And it just, it just seems so weird because it, it's almost out of place with it being this grandiose Elvis song in a film that has ostensibly felt quite British throughout. So to have this, and this, this, the song is called, uh, it's an American trilogy. It's part of that. And it's just the juxtaposition, the, the clash of it. And it, I don't know. It just works that it it shouldn't, but it absolutely does. I I love it so fucking much. And then kick-ass takes out the room of guys and the final command, the final battle then commences. Kick-Ass takes on Red Mist and Hit-Girl takes on the man behind the death of both of her parents. Again, hard-hitting, again, brutal. 
you feel every single punch that he's landed. Every slice of the knife you wince. It's just so good. And then we end it all off when Kickass shoots Frank D'Amico with that fucking bazooka, <laughs> exploding him out of the window above the city below. Wonderful bit of symmetry here as well. <laughs> yeah. So we start the film with a man jumping to his death as he tries to fly, and it ends with a man flying out of the window, but then just fucking explodes in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Wonderful. Absolutely brilliant. And then Kick-Ass picks up Hit-Girl and flies out of the window with the jetpack, having saved the day. Matthew Vaughan and Mark Miller, a can of Coke to both of you gentlemen. This film is fucking stunning. Thank you. Is this the best use of a, a jetpack in film? Or is it the other? The only other two I can think of that count is Bond, which you got to automatically dismiss, and um, The Rocketeer. Oh, bloody hell, the rockets here. I haven't thought about that for years. It's Timothy Dalton's seminal piece of art. <sighs> I, 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 could, I couldn't even tell you anything that's happened in that film. It's been that long since I've seen it. I almost I almost mentioned it last week just to get a reaction. But I thought, no. <laughs> it, it, this is almost even too niche for me to say. Because no one, a lot of people don't even know what it is. Well, it was a fairly big budget film that bombed, if I remember correctly. Yeah. That's exactly why no one knows what it is because it's on mm. it's on ITV two. Yeah, it's uh, it's one for it's not even Sunday afternoon Channel Five. It's worse than that. That must be bad. <clears throat> so the budget on this film, Matt, what do you reckon? Ten years ago, it was made uh, two hundred. You are way out. Yeah, okay. I wouldn't have, I would have said nowhere near that. I would have said. Because look at who's actually in it. Apart from Nicolas Cage, as a triple A stars mm. and recognisable in the effects, I would have said closer to sixty, seventy, something like that. Your way out, thirty million dollars. Oh my god! <laughs> it All was right. made on a, a relative shoestring. Incredible. I suppose they've got everybody who is pretty much on their way up. So that's how they've managed to do it for dirt cheap. They also did it without any studio backing. So um, Matthew Vaughan, he knew that the studios wouldn't like this film <laughs> because you've got a 12-year-old murdering people and calling them cunts. So he decided to make the film and then try and chop it afterwards. And I think that works better because if he'd have had studio notes coming in every couple of days, I mean, even when he was trying to shop it, so many studios said to him, get rid of that word or make her 19 and that's the only way we'll fund you and he was like nope it has to be this you either don't fund us or i'm going elsewhere and he well went elsewhere he ended up at lion's gate to get it out there so i i respect that sort of commitment to his arse i think that is incredible absolutely so based on that then 30 million budget Stu, what do you reckon was the worldwide box office well, it was a massive, it was everywhere, wasn't it? So, two, three hundred, something like that. Again, quite a bit out. Oh, Matt? No. Well, I was going to go with my, two, my initial 200, but I'll, I'll go I'll go higher, then I'll go 400. No, it was the other way. It made 98 million. Oh, really? What? I'm 
I mean, don't get me wrong, that is a fantastic return. So for a 30 million outlay, mm. they've got treble their money back. That is fantastic. But yeah, I mean, I remember that the summer of 2010, the, the kick-ass summer, it was on the side of every bus shelter, on every bus, on every billboard. It was everywhere. And like almost everyone I knew saw this film. Yeah. So I was expecting it to be closer to the like 150 to 200 mark. I wonder if it's one of them because of being almost a turn of things while it's 2010 so Blu-ray the year that it's things like that so if if it was DVD Blu-ray VOD what that would be now Mm, yeah comparatively Mm. especially for yeah for a a pretty niche film as well with again with no real I mean Lionsgate what you say Lionsgate the thing that jumped out to me saw Mm mm-hmm yeah, so, it is that level of sort of not quite indie, but almost indie filmmaking, yeah. isn't it? Uh, a studio that just don't give a fuck about what they put out, so now that people love it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So on IMDb, the Metacritic score was a paltry 66. I don't get that, but the fan score was 7.6. And on Rotten Tomatoes, the critic score was 76%, and the fan score was 81%. And from what I remember, like, cause I, I listen to quite a lot of film um, review podcasts and stuff and have done forever and a day. And I, I've heard like Mark Kermode and, and some of the premier critics talk about how much they really enjoy this film. And that's not something that you generally hear about comic book movies. So, yeah, kudos to the filmmakers here. I think they did a tremendous job. Yeah. And it's, well, it, not just comic book movies, comedies in general don't get enough love yeah no you're right you are right Mm. so the good the bad and the crazy i'll kick it off because i've had to change it because like for my bad the only thing i've got bad is that when dave is talking to katie on the phone he doesn't say goodbye and he just hangs up so (laughs) it's gonna have to be the good (laughs) the good the great and the crazy because this film is just that it's it could be a long list, to be perfectly honest. I think there is so much good in this movie. But I would like to point out one thing that I thought was really well done. In the scene where the cop, Marcus, when he's reading that comic book in um, mm. in the McCready's apartment, the artist who did that is John Romita Jr. That's the co-creator of Kick-Ass. Oh, OK. Yeah. So he actually did the artwork for it. and it's That's quite cool. Uh, and the thing is, this was probably the last good piece of work that John Romita Jr. has done. Everything since this has been absolute dog shit. This is the last time it looked good for me. So, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed that little nod to, uh, to him. I thought it was well done. The great, the changes to the source material, very much needed. So, in the comic book, uh, Damon, he kidnaps Mindy and he tells her that... Um, that the mom had died and that he blamed it on Frank D'Amico. His name was something else in the, the comic books, but basically Frank D'Amico. So he turns her into a vigilante and to fund their lifestyle, he basically sold comic books. And in reality, all that happened was that his, her, her mother fell out of love with him because he was a comic book geek and obsessed with that world. And that makes it very difficult to root for him if you know that actually he's just a bit of a shit He kidnapped his daughter and brainwashed her. So I think changing that and making it that he's a loving father who is trying 
trying to protect her the only way he knows how. I, I think that's fantastic. That is very much what he's needed. Uh, and the mad is obviously going to be a 12-year-old saying cunt. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, that should be mad in any film that he's ever made, ever. I love the fact that, like, obviously the comic book a code is long dead at this point. But I just love the idea that Frederick Wortham, who created the whole comic book code after writing the Innocence, uh, Seduction of the Innocent, he would have just been just fucking turning in his grave at this. <laughs> Like Frederick Wortham, he wrote about Batman promoting a homosexual lifestyle because what? Be, well, there wasn't a female who lived in Wayne Manor. Oh, so, God. So obviously that is promoting a homosexual lifestyle. That was why they brought in a female housekeeper for a while. And when, uh, you also got uh, Kate Kane, Batwoman. Um, mm. She was in it way back then because you couldn't have a bachelor about town living with a young boy and an old man. Well, was she gay then as well, though? Or did that change no, later? No. no, it was a completely different character. So, like, they were sort of together-ish. It was a bit weird. It makes more sense when she comes back as a gay character who is also Bruce Wayne's cousin. But, yeah, I just love the idea of this film giving Frederick Wortham a heart attack. Because, fuck him. And also, as a slight aside, Mark Miller, the, uh, the co-creator of this, he also wrote a comic book anthology series called Clint... And the reason is that's another fuck you to the comic book code because they wouldn't allow the words Clint or Flick in comic books because capital L, capital I, it would have looked like fuck or cunt. <laughs> so he then released an anthology series called Clint. Oh, I just, yeah, <laughs> salute you, Mr. Miller. That is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, you're good, bad, great, mad, whatever you want to call it. Good. I mean, there's, there's 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 absolutely loads of things that you um you can say, but I just want to give a more of a focus really on the music that's that's used throughout it. I think it's it's really fitting to every scene that, that what they're trying to achieve. So the hit girl uh, fight scenes, it's very fun, very, and they're all um you know female led songs as well. Fantastic. Uh, the scene with Big Daddy is really dark, menacing. Uh, the the Elvis, the big the big uh, resurrection almost when he comes upon the jetpack. I just think they do a really good job with the music in this film. I think it fits every scene fantastically. Really, really well. Um, bad. There's a couple of things in this that, you know, stop it being God tier film for me. Um, one of them, it's, it's more of just a, maybe like a plot thing that they didn't, they didn't explore for more than anything that, than something that they did. Kick-Ass is all about doing the right thing um you know being the one that stands up to the bullies everything else but he never questions the morality of actually killing anybody he's, he's very quick to become in any you know if, if you weren't given a context he's just a mass murderer with a gatling gun like they don't they don't explore that at all not even you know remotely enough for me um so it's the only thing really but i'm just i'm just nitpicking really you know it's, it's hard to find major fault to this and it, by doing that do you take away some of just the pure fun of the film mm -hmm. do you know what i mean so you know, it's six of one and a half doesn't do the other really. Um, in terms of crazy, the only thing I'd have liked to have seen, if I could have, if I could have added something, if if they would have said, Matt, do you want to throw a line in this film or something like that? When um, when Hit Girls goes into the lobby and she puts the gun in his mouth and he turns around and he's got this gun in the side of his mouth, <laughs> I've got in my head for some reason because when I think of Hit Girl, I think of Natalie Portman in Leon, mm, very like yeah. a lot of connections, and I've just for some strange reason in my head. 
wanted to say, this is from Matilda, and she's put a grenade in his mouth. It blows up. The scene starts. I could just imagine it. I don't think it would have just looked amazing, but just so the fight scenes in general, the amount of effort that must have gone in to choreograph them, and it, it shows how good Kingsman was, and it wouldn't have been good without this. Really, really well done. Stu, what are you saying? There's, I think this is the first time that we universal love for it. Just and there's not, like I said, you can't. We are nitpicking at things. My nitpick is the CG fire looked a bit bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's the year. It's. I love this film. It was. It's just superb. Um, we've already gone over it. How it's. It just works because it's so grounded. And I think when he got the <laughs> when he was on online buying a. a a diving suit for $99 and then he turns up and he looks a bit shit. And I thought, well, yeah, that's exactly what it would do. That's what it, exactly what it would look like. And you are going to get stabbed and hurt if you go out looking like that. But yeah, it just, it just worked perfectly. And I think we haven't even mentioned it as well. Saying it's good, bad, and good, great and crazy. Nicholas Cage's excellent Adam West impression. Mm. I've got that in the, the next bit, but yeah, carry on. It's just because at, at first, this again, because it's been five years or so, and I'd I'd forgot that even happened. And then you see, even how he was standing and everything, and we know how much of a comic book nerd he is anyway. Mm. It was just spot on. It, it was just absolutely brilliant. And I, uh, one of the moments where you're not going to be giggling at it naturally, you have to be in on the joke. It was just it was just excellent timing again with everything. I think that's the the key of this film. Just timing is perfect. Yeah, yeah mm. it is. Yeah. With absolutely. everyone. And it just, it just works for that reason. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a stupid question. Did you enjoy this film? In a word, Matt? Yes. Stu? Absolutely. And fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, the, the, the question that's probably going to have a little bit more conversation is going to be Nick Cage, good or bad? I mean... Obviously, it's going to be good, and it is that it's that channeling of his inner Adam West. We know he's a massive Superman fan, but he was channeling the, the Light Knight. He was channel, channeling Batman sixty six here. Even Matthew Vaughan has said that's exactly what he did. And apparently, I've read that other names that were in consideration were Daniel Craig, Brad Pitt, and Mark Wahlberg. Those were the three other people who were going to be up for Big Daddy. And I can't imagine any of those bringing anything other than just their normal bog standard self to this role. Whereas Nick Cage has gone like above and beyond. He's made decisions that nobody else would have made. And it, it fleshes out the character so much more for doing that. The stick on moustache. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's like the... Like... The Ned Flandersisms that I, that I mentioned before, the way he talks, the way his character is completely different when he puts on the makeup and the and the uh, and the Big Daddy uniform, the way he speaks is just hilarious. Mm. And like, you know, when we talk about Adam, the way he laughs at his own jokes like a geeky dad would, and and then does this <laughs> silly little laugh to himself. Um, but then. When he's um, talking about um, his revenge, he gets angry really quickly. And it comes as a real shock. He goes from like extremes really, really quickly, but convincingly not um, not jarring. 
at all. He's he's excellent in this in such a short space of time. Um, and I don't think, I think the best bit about his performance is the way that he comes across as the loving father in everything that he does. Not, you know, even when, even when they're fighting crime and they're killing people, he's still just a loving dad. And I think it comes across really well. It's absolutely perfect. And, and realistically, Big Daddy is just a Batman pastiche. But I think anyone but Nick Cage would have done a bad Christian Bale. So he just decided to do an Adam West just to make sure that everyone <laughs> knew that he was better. And I love that. Nerds, geeks, sweaties. Look how far we've come. We rule the world. But it wasn't always this way. Let's go back to a time when there was no comic book cinematic universe, when you had to wait three years to get a superhero movie. Back to a time when Batman used a credit card. This is a film about a superhero movie that didn't get made. We're going to move on and just have a a little bit of a discussion, really, because Nick Cage, obviously, we know, is a massive comic book fan. And there's a documentary called The Death of Superman Lives, which is about the exploration of the Tim Burton film, which was going to be starring Nick Cage as Kal-El of Krypton. Have we all seen this, guys? Stu, I know you've seen it. Matt, have you had a chance to have a... I've not, but this is an opportunity for you to to promote it and sell it to me. Why do I need to see it? It's like history history in a can of something that should have happened, Mm. but also shouldn't. Mm. (laughs) Basically, the film got cancelled because the studio fucked up so badly with films before it. And that's the only reason. <laughs> it sound it sounds incredible on paper. I know we, we don't really want to. Do we really want to say what happened because it's pretty much the entire premise of the film? But basically, the stars in it, the ideas in it, are just one of these things where everyone's in the picture of Nicolas Cage in the in the suit, and it, it goes into what that how bad that photo was as well, and that someone had stolen it from, had took a picture on set in the fitting. Which, well, he wasn't even on set. It was just a, a costume fitting, and mm. he's not looking proper. But you actually look at the the stills of him, uh, actual production shots, and like the uh, the ones that was going to go out to Empire and magazines like that, and he looks great in them. So yeah, but when you the, look at that that picture that does the rounds with him in that really dark blue, purplish sort of tinted suit, it looks appalling, and you just think, shit, that would have been the worst film ever. But then when you see the one with the proper blue, red and yellow, it still looks a bit shit, but it's not <laughs> it's not quite as bad as what you initially expect from those pictures. And when you see some of the other artwork that went into it, so they did create other suits that would have gone because it was going to be the story of Superman versus Doomsday, so the death of Superman. And you see some of the, the like they built a resurrection Kryptonian suits and all these things, and it looked spectacular. It did feel like they were throwing the baby out with the bathwater a little bit when they decided to just completely shit-can it. It was a bit of disappointment, really. But the documentary is fascinating just to hear about the imaginations of the film business. So it deals with um, John Peters, who is um, a producer. He was famous for being Barbara Streisand's hairdresser, and now he's an all-powerful producer in Hollywood. And when he met Kevin Smith, who was going to be writing a a draft of the uh, Superman Lives, he told him that he didn't want to see him fly, he didn't want to see him in the suit, and he wants to see him fight a giant spider. (laughs) (laughs) They're like the only three things that he told him. 
that the film had to be. And then as you go through the film, you realise that the film they were making wasn't really a Superman film. Yes, the character was Clark Kent, Kal-El, Superman. But actually, everything else around it was just a comic book movie, just not necessarily one you would recognise. Yeah, very much, very much like we said about Ghost Rider a few weeks ago, how Ghost Rider 2 was just a, a comic book film with Ghost Rider in. That's what it would have been like. And like you said about the regeneration suits, which had lights and stuff in it, which was mm. which would have looked amazing. And you had just and how far it was almost down to starting production when they're candy. It was that far gone. The script yeah. was the script was pretty much done. Everything was everything was ready to go. And then they pulled the plug at the last minute and made World Wild West. Mm-hmm. And they spent millions on this film because obviously Nick Cage had to be paid off. Tim Burton had to be paid off. It was a real clusterfuck, to be perfectly honest. The one thing that I'm, why I'm a bit glad I, this film wasn't made, it was the oversimplification of um, Tim Burton's mind. He basically seemed to think that Superman was Batman, but in daytime. And it's like, there's more to the character than just that. But that's very much his approach to it. I, I didn't like that. But it was just interesting to hear that his inner workings, how he thought it would have all played out. Yeah, and I, there's, I, there's- as I said, there's a lot of Nick Cage influence as well, and it, you can you see them talking to each other about the character and all these kind of things. An actual wig watch as well, wig watch in in oh, wig effect. Yeah, huge wig watch in this. When he's he's getting fitted for a wig, and they talk about it. I thought it's it's a holy grail of this podcast. We've seen it on air. <laughs> <laughs> but like for me, there was no way that Tim Burton was the right man for the job. And John Peters was far too over the top. It, it just felt like they were throwing as much shit against the wall to see what would stick. Mm-hmm. But it's a fascinating documentary. It's available on YouTube. It's uh, one hour, 45 minutes. But it, it's worth it. But with that yeah. said, Stu, would you like to have seen Nick Cage as Superman? Would he have done the job, do you think? Uh, before watching this, I would have said it was one of the most stupid things I've ever heard. But watching this film and how excited he was, I think he would have been okay. I think mm. I don't think he would have done a bad job. I think the rest of the film, I mean, there was a flying school ship, so <laughs> you know that's that's how it, it had very much um, Batman and Robin vibes mm. in parts, and it, how it was it was so far over the top that it was it was only going to go one way. But yeah. I think him as Superman would have worked. Yeah, I think the difficulty is, is you see Superman and you will always, always think of Chris Reeves. And this would this would not have been that version of Superman. And a lot of people, I think, would have struggled with that. So it might not. Have, it might have failed. Yeah, might, but I would have jo- been interested to see. Really, yeah, the, the George Lazenby effect. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's exactly what it is. But then after all this, we, he did finally get to play Superman, albeit in animated form when he appeared in Teen Titans Go to the Movies. He only gets a couple of lines, but I can imagine he was happy as fucking Larry finally getting to be Superman. Well, it is important to have dreams, I guess. And of course, he was also in Spider-Verse, which is a tremendous film, which I know we briefly mentioned last week, playing Spider-Man Noir. And Stu pointed out to ourselves yesterday, which we didn't realise, but they're p- planning on doing a Spider-Man noir spin-off movie. And I I thoroughly applaud that effort, and I, I hope it works. I'm very excited to see that. 
And there's just the lines about the um, why what, something about the wind blowing his cape or something like that. And he said that there's always wind or something. <laughs> yeah. It's something ridiculous like that. And he's he's prime Nicholas Cage in that film, even though he's probably got about two minutes of <laughs> of lines in it. But yeah, that that film would be amazing. Even the fact that the character is always in black and white, just yeah. silly shit like that. But yeah, it's really good fun. So if you haven't seen that film, you must. It's one of the best. Hey, fellas. Is, is he in black and white? Where's that wind coming from? We're in a basement. Wherever I go, the wind follows. And the wind it smells like rain. And to round off this week, we're just going to do a quick tally up of how we go in with the... Uh, the old question of is Nick Cage good or bad? So far, we have watched 11 films. We've done both of the National Treasures, The Rock, Con Air, Face Off, Next, City of Angels, Captain Corelli's, both Ghost, uh, ghost Riders and Kick-Ass. Just before we do a rundown of the numbers, I think we should do our top five films. Don't need to give an explanation, just if you want to give us a rundown five to one. Matt, do you want to tell us uh, what you're thinking? Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, so, in number five, controversially, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, believe it or not. Because there was, there was enough in it that kept me um, enjoying it, the history side of it, as we discussed. Go back in the archives and listen to why. Um, in number four would be Con Air. Uh, number three would be Face Off. Number two is uh, Kick-Ass. And in number one would be The Rock. Intriguing. Intriguing indeed. Um, number five would be National Treasure Two, mm. which remember when, when we said all, all the many weeks ago that the second one, his character was much better and much more mm-hmm. rounded and, and uh, yeah. fleshed yeah. out. So his performance in that was was much better than the first one. And I'm not having Love Cage Week. That was bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> number, number four, uh, Kickass. Number three, Conair. Number two, Face Off, and number one, The Rock. Mm, okay. So for me, number five, I've gone with City of Angels. <laughs> like the film is fucking terrible, but I really enjoyed our conversation about it. Yeah, it made me laugh, and I think it's there just because it's one of my favourite podcast recordings so far. <laughs> I think that's my explanation. Absolutely fair. For it. Yeah, absolutely fair. Number four, same as you guys, Conair. Number three, I've gone with The Rock. Number two, I've gone with Face Off. Number one, it's today's. It's Kick-Ass. And The Wooden Spoon, who is following up far behind the rest. I will start it off. (laughs) I'm going to leave Stu hanging. Uh, the Wooden Spoon for me is Ghost Rider. It's a fucking terrible film. <laughs> it just left me cold and dead inside, much like the cold, the Ghost Rider himself. Uh, Matt? Uh, stealing Shoes Thunderer, I predict, but it's got to be next, just for... It's got to be one of the only times that this has become an uncomfortable and unpleasant experience having to watch a film. I got it just, it was, I, By the end of it, I was... Very much wishing that I could go back in time and have the decision not to watch it. I know it's not about I know it's not about, not about time travel per se, but I wish I could have uh, made that uh, had the foresight to make that decision. It's, go on then, Stu. It's just nonsense, eh? It just <laughs> it, 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 it just 
I mean, it made me that angry that I couldn't even go to bed. I had to, I could, I had to calm myself down. It's just, it's just a, a bag of bollocks. So I'm just next, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, we've been doing these watch alongs, trying to answer this age-old question. Our pod essay to the man himself has resulted in some interesting numbers so far. So we got off to a fairly strong start. So after the National Treasures, The Rock, Conair and Faceoff, he got in a 12-3 to lead in favour of good. But then came next Captain Corelli's Mandolin, <laughs> City of Angels and both, both Ghost Rider films. So it then got to 15-14, to 14, still in favour of good, but it was only the one point in it. But he's back on track today with a 3-0 win after kick-ass. So it's 18-14. to 14. It's not a conclusive result yet. And there is still a long way yet to go. But there we go. So as it stands, Nick Cage is in the good camp. Any surprises there? Is that what we expected? I just, most of them bad ones are from you. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is true. Um, no, he's. I think that's... That probably is fair that when you are saying Nicolas Cage, you are you know you naturally get a kind of sixty forty split. So yeah, it's kind of it's not a surprise to me really, but it's a, a nice nice start. Mm. Yeah, I think um, if we put this question to the Twitter, I think especially you know with some of the other Cage podcasts that are out there that also kind of examine his work, I think you might get a similar kind of reaction. I'd be interested because we've hit because naturally because of how um, old or young I should say this podcast is we've we've done some of the big hitters first where he hasn't been able to maybe have as much creative input on what he's done as maybe some more independent mm. films where I think we'll actually see his acting chops be utilised a little bit better so I expect that the good column will get a, a few more wins in the upcoming weeks before we get into the stage of the career where he did anything for money. Like a cheap whore. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the the bankruptcy period, like the the late or the mid to late 2010s, just to see the real dirge. That'll be the fun stuff. So obviously that's us done for another week. Please subscribe and follow us on the Twitter at CageFightingPod. Send us any questions you've got to CageFightingPod at gmail.com or you can just tweet them, DM us, whatever you need. So for this week... Stu, would you like to say goodbye? Take it easy, guys. Matt, would you like to say goodbye? Take it easy, guys. Stay safe. And from me, I'd just like to say, if you need to get hold of us, contact the mayor's office. They'll put up <laughs> our signal. It's in the shape of a giant cock. See you next week. Is he always like that? Oh, him? Yeah. Ever since the third grade, this, uh, this nun was teaching us about the Blessed Trinity. You know, she's going on and on about the three persons in one God thing, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Banky just goes ballistic on her. They got this huge fight. An eight-year-old kid. How bad could it have been? Well, have you ever seen a nun call a small child a fucking cut rag? <laughs> it wasn't pretty. <laughs> <laughs>